Hello everyone and welcome back to The Real Life Show, the podcast where I, Alice Plunkett, reach into people's unique experiences and explore their lives. Together we will ride a roller coaster of emotions from sadness and fear to joy and admiration as we discuss human challenges such as abuse, addiction and incurable diseases and we'll hear inspirational stories of success. Today we're going to talk with Charlotte Woodward. Charlotte's going to talk to us about her personal journeys through cancer and she confides how having beaten it twice she experienced survivor's guilt. Right so good afternoon Charlotte thank you for um, meeting with me today and um, I feel really privileged to be able to speak to you about this and hear about your journey. Can we start by you telling me, well, could we start from the beginning? So all, all I, the, the summary of what I know is that you've beaten cancer twice. Um, yeah. Can you tell me about those cancers? What was the first cancer and how did you discover that you had cancer? So my first cancer was cervical cancer um, and I was first diagnosed in October 2020. So just before I was diagnosed, I actually had um two episodes of bleeding after intercourse it was once in July once in August and I kind of knew that that was like a red flag I don't sort of have any abnormal bleeding um so it was completely new for me so I said to my partner at the time that I'd get it checked out by the GP and it just so happened that we'd been on a weekend away and when I got home I actually had a letter saying that my smear test was due so I booked the smear test um always be through smear tests and sort of been up to date and things um so I booked me a test and I thought I'll just mention it to the nurse while I'm there so that was in the September so I had my smear test um mentioned it to the nurse she kind of just said wait for your smear results to come back um but I, I don't know something just didn't sit right with me um and I just felt like it, because it was COVID at the time the smear results were actually taking like six to eight weeks to come back Wow. And something just didn't sit right with me. So I ran the GP surgery the next day um, and I had a telephone consultation with the doctor and explained everything. And they asked me to go in um, on the Monday to see the female GP just to see if she can examine me and just to see if she can see anything abnormal. Yeah. So I did that, um, went in on the Monday, GP examined me with a speculum and she saw that my cervix, the surface of my cervix looked rough. And she kind of said that that could have been, is a really common condition called ectropion, which is where your soft cells grow on the outside and then any sort of friction or disturbance causes them to bleed. So she thought it was that, but she did say that because it was so abnormal and it was sort of like a red flag, um, she referred me to the hospital just, just in case. So she referred me on a two-week wait list um, for a colposcopy at the hospital to the gynae team just to see if there was anything abnormal. And um, I went for that in October, I think it was the beginning. Were you, of um, were you nervous going for that, Charlotte? Because I, th I think what you what you said earlier is key, isn't it? We know our own bodies, and yeah. sometimes it is just a feeling that that something yeah. isn't quite right. And I think that's really important that we're in tune with ourselves and believe ourselves, isn't it? When when we think that, were you nervous yeah. at this time, or were you kind of like thinking, oh, well, it's, it's okay because somebody's going to take a look, or? Um, 
I think I was a bit blase about everything, to be honest. I had I had that gut feeling I knew there was something not right. I just had that gut feeling, but I didn't have any other symptoms. So I wasn't sort of bleeding otherwise. Um, I'd only had those two episodes and I had sort of no pelvic pain or anything like that. I, I didn't have any symptoms. So I think I was a bit blase about it all. And I kind of just thought that, I never thought it would be cancer. I just thought it would be something gynae-related, whether it is the ectropion or something else, or I don't know, cysts or anything. I just thought it was something gynae-related, but I just never, the thought of cancer never even crossed my mind. Right. I think it's just because of, you know, I've always had some smears. I've always been up to date. And I kind of just thought in my mind that because of that, that everything would be fine because yeah. I've always been clear on the smear test. So I just thought of... Oh, obviously just means that I'm not going to have cancer. Um, Can I ask how old you were at this time? I was, the, was I 30 or 31? Oh, so you were young, yeah, so you're young was, lady and, yeah. So you do kind I, of like think at that age as well, cancer isn't something that's going to happen to me? This is it, yeah, completely. Um, I, I think I just celebrated my 30th birthday in September um, and it just, yeah, it never even crossed my mind. Um, you just presume that because you're young and because you've had just three tests, everything's going to be fine. Um, yeah. But obviously now I know that that isn't the reality. Um, and through what I've learned, I actually know now that a smear test isn't there to detect cancer. It's just there to prevent cancer and to detect the abnormal cells before they have a chance to develop any further. So I didn't know any of that before. Um yeah, I think I was just very, very naive going into it. And even when I went for the colposcopy, um, the... What's that? So that is basically like an examination with a... Internal. Internal examination, yeah, with a um, doctor. And they basically, they put a speculum in and then they can see the cells of the cervix with a microscope. So the microscope doesn't go inside or anything like that. Um, but it's just a closer loop where they can see the cells in more detail. So I just presumed that he was going to look at the cells and confirm that it was ectropian. Um, but he did say that I had a small polyp on the cervix. So he removed that at the time and he took two biopsies at the same time. And I just bled so much at that time. And I didn't really feel worried about the fact that I was bleeding so much but I could kind of see the look on the nurses and the doctor's face that they had to do so much intervention to stop the bleeding just from the small biopsy in the back of my mind then I started thinking well why was it bleeding so much and yeah. why did they look so worried um did you ask them or did you not yeah, feel it was your so, place to ask um I didn't ask as such, but I did say to them, I kind of said, you know, what what do you think it is? Um, do you think it's anything to be concerned about? And they kind of just said, if the results come back as something sinister, then we'll give you a ring and we'll see you back in clinic. But if it comes back mm -hmm. fine, you know, the ectropion, et cetera, then we'll write to your GP and then your GP can kind of deal with what it is. Um, and I was like, okay, that's fine. And they they seemed, you know, the way that they said it, they didn't seem concerned from when they said that to me. And I actually went, um, 
away for the weekend. I went to Oxford with one of my friends. And it had been 10 days. I've not heard anything at all for 10 days. So right back in my mind I'd like think it's just going to go back to the GP then don't you this is it you think well no news is good news and maybe my GP's got a letter and it and I'll hear from my GP soon um but then the day before we were meant to come home I think it was the Monday afternoon I actually got a phone call from the hospital and they said that um the doctors wanted to see me again and that there'd been a cancellation for the Wednesday so could I come in on the Wednesday? So it was two days later. Um, I was coming home from Oxford on the Tuesday. So that's when alarm bells started ringing because in my mind then I was thinking, why do they need to see me so soon? They've rang yeah. me on the Monday, they want to see me on the Wednesday. And he said to me that if it had shown anything sinister, then they'd call me back and see me in clinic. So I think that, that was the point where I was like, oh, this could be real something serious yeah did you tell anybody else at that time or who were you yeah, confiding so, in um most of my friends knew what had happened anyway I'm quite open about things like that um and obviously my friend that I was with she knew and then I rang my mom and dad and told them as well so they they all knew and they all knew that I was going back um it was covid so I had to go back on my own on the Wednesday so I couldn't take anybody with me um I, th I think in the back of my mind, I still didn't think that they were going to tell me that I had cancer. Um, I knew it was something serious because they called me back and they wanted to see me, but I still don't think I thought that it was going to be cancer. Um, I don't actually know what I thought it was going to be, to be honest. I don't, I don't yeah. know. Um, we put our trust in um, medical professions, don't we? And, and we, yeah. yeah. So you weren't Googling it or trying to think? No. Check symptoms, no. No, no, I just, um, I think, like I say, I think I was very naive about things. I think I was very blase. I thought, well, I'm young, I've had my speed test, everything will be fine. Uh, oh, sorry, just to mention as well, at this point, I'd actually had my speed results come back and they'd come back as clear. Really? Uh, yeah, so they wow. came back during the wait time. So I'd had the biopsy, I was waiting. I think it, it had been at least... I think it had been 10 days by the time I went away from my birthday. And I'd actually had the letter during those 10 days to say that the smear test had come back as clear. Did anybody ever explain that to you, why that could be clear? No, so all my smear tests were under investigation at the minute. So they sort of go off to an external source. They look at all the smear tests that I've ever had to see whether they've been reported on right, to see whether anything was missed. Just because cervical cancer is so slow growing and it's such a slow cancer to develop the fact I think it takes something like 15 or 20 years for abnormal cells to turn into cancer so the fact that I'd had so many clear smears without any cells or any precancerous cells nothing um, I think that's what's triggered the the review of the smear test so I still I still don't know um, I'm not sure but yeah. I've actually now learned that the way that smear tests are performed changed in 2019 and they no longer look for abnormal cells as, as a rule. So they only look for abnormal cells if you test positive for HPV. Right. <clears throat> and if you don't have HPV, then no further tests. So when my right. smear tests come back, it comes back to say negative for HPV, your risk is low. 
So the cells weren't actually looked at at that time because it was not HPV positive. So how did they tell you that it was cancerous? So when I went in on the Wednesday, they called me back for the Wednesday. And when I went in, um, they kind of started getting me changed back into a gown again, like they did when I went for the colposcopy. And I was a bit confused. And I said to the nurse, I was like, I don't understand why I'm getting changed because... I've already had the procedure and I'm just here to see the doctor. I expected to sort of just go into a doctor's room and sit down at a desk type of thing. And she said, oh, have you not had your results yet? And I said, no, I've not had any results. And she kind of turned her computer screen away from me. And at that point, that's when I knew. I knew what they were going to tell me at that point. And I don't know why, but it just clicked. And I was like, they're going to tell me I've got cancer. And I just knew. So they took me into the room. There was a doctor in there and a nurse. And the doctor said, can can I, you know, can I examine you? And I said, yeah, that's fine. And at this point, I'd still not been told anything. And I think I was just too scared to ask. I think I was just, I wasn't quite sure what, what was going to happen. Yeah. So she examined me and she kind of, she was trying to feel around the tumour. And she said, um... She said, I can't feel the edges of the tumour. I can't feel around it. And I was like, tumour? I was like, what do you mean, a tumour? And she says, well, you know, the, the results have come back, that you've, you've got a tumour. Um, so you sorry, still but... hadn't been told, but then they started talking about a tumour. Yeah. And you're yeah. on your own because of COVID, a, yeah. a young lady. Yeah. Wow, it must have been scary. She said, do you want to get dressed and come sit down and have a chat? And I was like, I, I don't want to get dressed. I was like, can you just tell me now? Like, I don't want to go outside, get dressed, come back in. So I kind of just sat next to her desk in a gown and the examination bed was sort of in front of us. And I just sat there in the gown and then she asked me if I had children. She said, have you got any children? And I said, no. And she says, are, are you planning children? And I said, well, you know, the partner that I'm with is a relative new relationship and the discussion hasn't been had and... You know, I'm 30 years old, I've not really thought about it. And she said, um, she mentioned, I can't remember the wording that she said, but she mentioned something about um, a tumour again, and she mentioned something about cells. And at that point, I actually said to her, are you telling me that I've got cancer? And she said, yeah, I'm really sorry, but the results have come back positive for cancer. But you had to ask that question. That question, yeah. Yeah, I had to ask. Okay. I just felt so confused about what she was trying to tell me. And I was really, I mean, I'm a nurse myself. I, I, right. I, I know how to be, you know, I've, heard, I've broke bad news myself and I've heard things before. And I was just so confused about what she was telling me. I was thinking, have I got a tumour that's benign, that isn't cancerous or... And I, at that point, that's when I said, oh, you tell me I've got cancer. And um, she says the biopsy has come back positive for cancer. Um, it's sort of because I can't feel around the tumour when I'm examining you. We know that it's advanced. So it's not just going to be because if it was a small tumour, she could have just removed it there and then. Um, they have like a almost like a, a soldering wire where they can just burn it away there and then. So the fact that she couldn't feel around the edges meant that it was too big. So I had to go for sort of MRI and CT scans to see what size it was. 
um, and to see whether or the treatments at that point was said that it was going to be a hysterectomy. So it would just be a full hysterectomy, take everything away. Um, and then hopefully that would be the case that they remove it all. But I actually went for the MRI scan and it come back that it had already spread to the, my lymph nodes and my groin. So a hysterectomy wasn't an option because it wouldn't remove all of the cancer because it had already spread. Um, so at that point, they told me that I'd have to go for chemotherapy and radiotherapy. So, yeah, okay. it's, it was a whirlwind. It was a huge whirlwind. Yeah. Um, and being a nurse, do you think that you understood more than the average person would? Was it was it a hindrance or, or was it an advantage? That's what I'm trying to think it, of. Cause... Uh, was it, it was a hindrance, definitely. I think sometimes you can know too much. Yeah. And, especially when it comes to treatment and sort of blood tests and things like that, because I, I, kn I know sort of what they mean. I think sometimes it can be too much. Yeah, you know sometimes the processes. Yeah, I think not knowing would have been better sometimes. So you started treatment. How was that? Yeah, so I started treatment and the treatment was um, radiotherapy every day. So that was Monday to Friday for the five weeks every day. And on top of that, I also had chemo every Thursday. So Thursdays were huge, huge days. I was at the hospital from 8 o'clock in the morning till probably about 8 o'clock at night. Um, and then every other day was just radiotherapy. So it wasn't too bad because I could drive myself to radiotherapy, but the chemo, because of the drugs that they give you um my mum dropped me off and picked me off picked me up but again because it was covid everything was just on my own there was nobody allowed in the hospital at all so um i don't because i don't know any difference i don't know whether that was a bad thing or not because i was meeting people at treatment and they'd kind of started their treatment before chemo uh, before covid sorry they'd started their treatment before covid where they were having sort of the partners and relatives and friends going sick with them for the day. And then COVID hit and all of a sudden they couldn't have that anymore. So I think they felt it a lot. It was a big impact for them. But yeah. I think because I started everything during COVID, I didn't really know any difference. Um, but I mean, it was, it was still hard, don't get me wrong, but I had everybody when I got home and I had a lot of support at home. So it was- Did you live on your own, Charlotte, or did you live with- um, so at that point when I started becoming unwell, I lived with my parents. Um, I actually knew at that point I didn't. When the cancer spread, at that point I sold my house. But um, during that time, I, I was just living with my parents. So they were they were a big help, a massive help. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it really okay. did. So um, did the yeah. treatments make you poorly? Um. The radiotherapy impacted more than the chemotherapy. So the chemo that I had at that time, I didn't lose my hair. Um, it was the chemo that sort of weakened the cells to allow the radiotherapy to work better. And I think the radiotherapy was the main treatment for, for, for the cancer. And then after I finished, so I did, um, I did five weeks of that. So I did um, 25 sessions of the radiotherapy. I did four sessions of chemo because I actually got COVID halfway through, so I had to miss oh, one chemo. No. And then at the end of that, I had a treatment which is called brachytherapy. And I think if you speak to any of the cervical cancer girls, they'll all agree it's by far the worst bit of the treatment. So 
what it is without going into too much graphic detail. It's basically internal radiotherapy. So you go into hospital for three days and you sort of have metal rods placed inside you, which stay in place for three days. So you have to sort of stay lying flat because you can't sit up. And then every day you go down into radiotherapy, they attach the rods to the radiation and they deliver radiation directly to the cervix internally. Um, so, yeah, it's it's pretty, pretty brutal. It's an so you have school. to lie for three days, do you say? Three days, completely How flat. do you eat and drink? Lying flat. <laughs> wow. You have a water bottle. They give you a water bottle inside with like a, a pipe that you can drink from. Um, and then it's mainly just sandwiches really and things that you can eat lying down um i think the idea is if you sit up because the metal rods are inside you you can kind of perforate your womb so right. you have to lay flat yeah can you turn onto your side or do you have to lay um, flat on your back so i we, you can't personally turn yourself because of the way that the rods are positioned but the nurses come in every few hours and they turn you to kind of make sure that you're not getting any pressure sores and stuff like that so they are quite good. Um, well, my hospital were really good, sort of on the wards, and they they did come and look after you. It's a very vulnerable position to feel, though, isn't it? Our carriages and 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 to know that you actually can't move. It must yeah. must be difficult. It was. It was very very difficult. Um, just even personal care, just not even being able to sort of do any personal care. Um. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it was difficult. It was very vulnerable. I think it was the first point that I'd actually felt vulnerable because I've been through the radiotherapy and chemo, you know, I sort of drove myself and I was carrying on staying a bit of help from my mum, but I was doing a lot of things independently still. Um so yeah, to lie there and not even be able to move onto your side, yeah, it was a, it was a lot. Yeah. So how long did that go on for, did you say? How many times so, did you have that? So three sessions of that, so it's three days, three sessions. Um, I actually had mine in split doses, so I went in for one day, had the rods put in, had one session, had the rods removed, and then the next time I went in, sort of stayed overnight and had the rods and um, did the, the next two sessions. So, yeah, I, I think that might have been worse because I had the rods in and out twice, um, but it was just the way that my treatment worked and we needed to get it done. So it was... It was the end of the treatment, so you kind of just power through because you know that it's the last bit and you think, well, it's just this one last year and I'll just get over this now and I've done the treatment. Um, but afterwards, it's you have to wait 12 weeks for a scan to see whether the treatment has worked. So it was a big wait. It was a long wait. That is um, a long wait, isn't it? It is. And so, I think sometimes it's the not knowing and the waiting that's the worst thing, definitely. Yeah, because I was going to say, throughout that treatment, were there any indicators that it was working or were you completely just left in the dark as to whether or not um, it was getting anywhere? So for the five weeks that I had the radiotherapy and then the chemo, I didn't kind of know anything because I didn't have any scans and didn't really know the progress. And then when I went for the BRCA therapy, I had, you have to have a scan at the beginning so they can plan where they need to place the rods. And at that point, I did ask my consultant whether... I'd had any results or not and she actually said to me at that point that I hadn't really had much response from the treatment that I'd had um, and it wasn't really looking very positive so I think at that point I kind of just 
expected the worst. Um, but then at the end of the treatment, at the end of the BRCA therapy, you have another mm -hmm. scan. And they actually said at the end of that scan that there was basically next to nothing left. So, wow. so oh, literally think, from thinking yeah. it wasn't working. And just those three sessions of BRCA therapy completely obliterated it. And that's the aim of the treatment. You know, it's, it's a very old treatment and it's not been change for years but the reason for that is because it works and it's direct radiation to the cancer cells and obviously even in my case I think at that point when they told me I just absolutely broke down I think I'd had the rods removed mm -hmm. um, I'd kind of reached the end of my treatment I was expecting the worst because I've been told I've not had much of a response and then when they said to me that the, the scan shows next to nothing left I just kind of broke down and I was just I just couldn't believe it to be honest it was just so surreal the idea is that even though there's still a little bit left the radiation carries on working for six weeks afterwards right. and that's why you can't have a scan for so long because you have to continue carry on working so yeah that that was a huge whirlwind because I've gone from being completely low to completely high and it was just yeah it was just one big roller coaster to be honest it was crazy yeah. So was that the end of it then after that or was there more treatment? So that was the end of that treatment um, and then obviously I had to wait 12 weeks for the scan but after about six weeks I started getting really bad pains in my hip and I'd been told that the, the bones in my pelvis were going to be really weak anyway because the radiation damages them and I've been told that there was a really high risk of fracturing the bones in the pelvis I'd already broken my hip previously years ago, so it was already weak anyway. So I just presumed that the pain that I was getting might have been like a little bit of a stress fracture or maybe from where I've been walking around, the pressure that I've been putting on the bones might have just done a little bit of damage. Um, so I left it for a couple of days and it just got worse. So I rang my consultant, told her, and she said, OK, we'll get you in for a scan and we'll just see what's going on and we'll just check. And I think I waited about 10 days maybe for that scan. Um, I can't really remember it, but during that time, I've literally gone from walking my dog miles a day normal to using crutches and then a wheelchair. So it, it was very, very quick. And the pain went from zero to 100 really quickly. And I think once the pain has started getting worse, I kind of knew at that point, I thought, this isn't good news. I had the MRI scan and then I was actually under the orthopaedics, so the bone doctors at that point. And it was the orthopaedics that I went in to see for the MRI results. And I went to, it was a fracture clinic that I went to because that is just where they hold their clinic. And I sat down and he had the scan up in front of him. And I think he'd read me file and he knew I was a nurse and he kind of said, well, I think I actually sat down and said, it's not good news, is it? And he was like, no, I'm afraid it isn't. He says, you've got a really large tumour at the top of um, your thigh bone in your hips. So at the bone socket joint of the hip, the ball part was tumour completely. He said, it's a really big tumour. It's growing really quickly. Um, on the scans that you had at the end of your treatment six weeks ago, we couldn't see any indication of it on, at that point. He said, so yeah, it's really aggressive. It's growing really quickly. And because it's now cancer in your bone, 
you're now classed as sort of stage force because it had spread to sort of an organ outside of the original cancer. So, yeah, they told me at that point I was stage four. They said that um, any treatment that I had from there was going to be sort of to prolong my life and not to save it. They said that it was incurable. Um, I wouldn't be able to beat it. And the aim was just to make me as comfortable as they can for as long as they can. Um, what a roller coaster you've gone yeah. from thinking it's not going to work and then you get the good news that it's working and then you get this yes. yeah. was this cancer a secondary cancer then was it a result of the first cancer or is it i i, I don't um, understand is it two different cancers or is it so, an, a, a... sorry um what happened was i went for a bone biopsy in my hip so they kind of just take a, a chip of the bone away, basically, um, and send it away. And the results of that come back that it was the cervical cells that had caused the cancer. So they can see what, what cells the tumour is made up of. And even though the cancer was in my bone, it was actually the cervical cancer cells that had kind of set up homes somewhere else and then produced this tumour. So... At that point, that's when they said that it was a, a secondary and it, it, it right. metastasized. Yeah. What emotions were running through you, Charlotte, at this time? Um. Me, so I was really close to my nana, and she was actually in hospital at the time. Um, she'd become really unwell with a breathing, and things weren't looking good for her. So my focus was on my nan, and I didn't want to tell her because she was a massive warrior anyway and I didn't want to tell her and make things worse I wanted her focus on her getting better and I think because I was still having all different scans and referrals to different people and I was under orthopedics and I was also under gynae and they were still coming up with a plan at that point because it had only been sort of a week I think since the diagnosis so my main focus was on her and um, what actually happened is I'd had a fall um, so I was I think I was kind of maneuvering around on the crutches and I've fallen over and landed on my hip and I was in really excruciating pain um, but we actually had a phone call the same day that was in the morning and we actually had a phone call the same day to say that we needed to go to Minano because things weren't looking good um, so we kind of I, we, all the family were there and we kind of just sat with Minano all day um, and unfortunately, she did pass away that day. No, oh, I'm sorry about that. Um, sorry. It's all right. Take a minute. Do you want to get a drink of water or anything, Charlotte? No, I'm okay. I've got one here, but I'm okay. Um, so we were with me and Anna until about eight o'clock that night, and then I, cu I couldn't, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't even stand up. I couldn't move and. My dad said to me, he was like, look, you've done what you need to do here now. You need to go and focus on you and you need to go and get sorted out now. So he took me to A&E um, and I went to A&E and they did sort of x-rays and more scans and things. And I actually ended up being admitted to hospital at that point. Right. I hadn't broke my hip, it wasn't a fracture. Um, I think I'd just landed badly on it and it was just painful because of what was going on. And... I was admitted and I was um the orthopedics came to me and they kind of said they were going to do a surgery where 
they were going to try and stabilise it because it was so at risk of dislocating. It was so at risk of, of fracturing. Um, they said that they were going to stabilise it by putting a nail in, into the joint and at least that way it might give me a little bit more mobility back and it might, when I start, the, the plan at that point was to start um, more chemo and they said that when I started the chemo, hopefully that might bring my pain down a little bit and because of the surgery to stabilise the joints, that might be the fact that it, it gives me a little bit more mobility back because it's, it's stabilised. Um, so that was the plan and then I had another scan so that they could plan where they were going to put the nail and what surgery they were going to do and they actually then said that they couldn't do that surgery because of the placement of where the tumour was then putting the nail in would have disturbed the tumour and potentially could have caused the cells to to travel elsewhere in the body so it was yeah. too risky they couldn't do that um, at that point I'd actually spoke to um, a nurse practitioner who worked on the oncology ward and she told me that one of the previous patients who was in a similar position to me had actually been referred to a specialist hospital and managed to have surgery at the specialist hospital right. so at that point I did ask for a second opinion and I did say look I know it might potentially delay things by asking for the second opinion but I would like to know for definite that this is the only option that I've got um, so I was actually referred to the Royal Orthopaedic Hospital in Birmingham and they said to me, come down, um, we've got all your scans and things, we can have a look, come down to see us, bring an overnight bag because if there is surgery that we can do and you're happy with that, we'll admit you straight away and we'll do the surgery the next day. Um, okay, that's good, isn't so, it? Yeah, yeah, it was, it was really good. They were fantastic. So I went down with my mum. Um, took an overnight bag with me we were seen in clinic I think it was about five o'clock at night and the surgeon that I saw was incredible he was so experienced he was the I think the the team there were like the top team in Europe and they do surgery that no other hospital can do and he said to me he was like I can I can operate on on this he said I can take the tumor away I can give you sort of metal work instead of the bone so we can replace half of your thigh bone we can replace all of your hip um he said it's a big surgery we're gonna have to take away quite a lot of muscle and tissue with it as well um you know you're probably gonna have to learn to walk again you're not going to be able to walk sort of without a stick for the rest of your life um potentially you might still have to use a wheelchair or you might still need crutches and things um i think he said the top five percent of patients who have this surgery will walk with a stick um, so I was prepared for that I knew it was going to be a big surgery but in my mind I just thought I've got nothing to lose and it's yeah. the only thing that's going to give me some quality. Was there any other that. options? Was that your only option? or was That was there... my only yeah so they still said that I could have chemo alongside the surgery um, because the surgery wasn't to cure the cancer it was just to give me a better quality of life it was to give me my mobility back and at least try and give me a better quality of life so the chemo was going to shrink the cancer and obviously the surgery was going to try and remove as much as they could. And that that was, you know, that was the option. So I said, yeah, that's fine. I'll go for it. I've got nothing to lose. Um, and I had the surgery. I think I went to the clinic on the Monday and I had the surgery on the Wednesday. I was admitted straight from When clinic. was it? Was it last year? Or? It was June 2021 now. 
Right, so okay. I was diagnosed in the October 2020, finished my treatment in February um, 2021. Then I had to wait 12 weeks for the results, but obviously I got the pain and then I was diagnosed with stage four in April. And then it was June by the time I had the surgery. Um, so before I had the surgery, I actually managed to get one dose of chemo, um, which started me losing my hair because that chemo was going to make me lose my hair. So when I went for the surgery, I was kind of wearing turbans and trying to preserve my hair for as long as I could. Um, I wanted to have that control and I wanted to, to, to sort of shave my hair myself. But because I was having the surgery, I was trying to sort of prolong that until I got home, um, which I did. I did manage to do. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, did did yeah. you have to shave your hair afterwards? Yeah, so my dad did it for me. So I had the surgery and the day I was re- released, not released, the day I was discharged. discharged. <laughs> um, the day I was discharged and I got home and that evening my dad shaved it off for me straight away. Um, I kind of said... I'd got home, I think it was about three, four o'clock in the afternoon, and I kind of said, I don't want to go to bed tonight and wake up with hair all over my pillow. I want to wake up tomorrow fresh. I've had the surgery, I'm home. My hair is falling out. In, I mean, at this point, it was just coming out in clumps anyway. Um, and I didn't want that. I didn't want to wake up with hair on, on my pillow and to run my hair, fingers through my hair and it come out in clumps. Yeah. Um, I wanted to have that control. So yeah, he shaved it for me that night. And um, So yeah, for was, you, shaving your hair at that time was almost like, this is this is a new beginning. This is, we've had the surgery. Because quite often you hear it the other way around, don't you? It's like people are shaving the hair and, and that's the sign of the treatment to come and the journey to come. But for you, it was yeah. almost like, this is the beginning of my recovery and I'm going to... Yeah. Start that it was, that way. Uh, I knew I had more chemo to face. I'd have one session. I think I had another five planned. Um, and I didn't know what was going to happen at the end of that chemo because I didn't know at what point I would be. And I knew I had a long recovery sort of with the surgery that I just had. But yeah, it was completely a new beginning for me. I was like, right, this is a new fight now. This is a new, um, so almost like a new diagnosis. But yeah. I was I was determined completely and where did you get your strength from, Charlotte? My dad. Um, wow. hundred percent my dad. So my dad had stage four cancer when I was a teenager. I think I was fifteen. And he has stage four cancer. Um he'd been given, you know, a a, a sort of prognosis that was really poor and they said there was nothing that you could do for him. And then a clinical trial came up and he was 39 at the time and they said that if he was 40 they wouldn't have offered it him so he went for the clinical trial he went down to Birmingham and it was completely new treatment and um, it completely cured him he, he completely wow. all cancer went he went into remission um, stayed in remission and has been in, well, all clear ever since so that so, positive story inspired you and gave you some strength to not give up I suppose didn't it because I knew it could be done I'd seen it being done and I thought well I've been given this prognosis I've been given this time frame of you know you've got sort of 80 12 to 18 months to live and I never ever once believed that like I felt I felt well that was making me unwell but without the treatment I felt fine um and I knew that it could be done I'd seen it being done I've seen my dad do it 
Um, there's a lady that I follow on Instagram, um, Nat. She is amazing. I speak to her all the time. And she is stage four. She's gone into remission as well. And there is a big cancer community. And even though there's a lot of people with very poor prognosis, there's also people that have defined the odds and beat that. So, yeah, I'm, I, I didn't like to take over my mind. Right. That's amazing. So how so you had chemo then? How how was your recovery at that time then? So um it it was really hard because I was recovering from the surgery. Um it was a lot harder than I thought. Um because it was such a whirlwind going into it. I'd seen him on the Monday, he'd explain what the surgery was going to be, then I had the surgery on the Wednesday. And I think I Everything was just happening so quick. I don't think I actually had the time to process what the recovery was going to be like. Um, so, yeah, I had to learn to walk again. Um, I was having chemo at the same time and the chemo was making me really unwell. So I didn't sort of have the energy to put into the physical side of it. Um, I wasn't eating. I was sort of in bed all the time. So I think the two going hand in hand together... It, it was tough it was really tough um I kind of had because the chemo was every three weeks so I kind of had my chemo week but then I had a bad week and then I had a good week just before my chemo again so in when that you good week you'd know that it was about to start again wouldn't you yeah so. but I didn't really it didn't really daunt me like it didn't hang over my head I kind of just tried to make the most of those weeks um like I went away me and my mum and dad went away in a caravan with my dog uh, to North Wales. Um, we went, me and the girls went on a, a caravan holiday again in North Wales. And I just tried, tried my best to just do as much as I could within those weeks. Um, the girls threw me a massive party for my birthday in the September. And again, it was in that good week. And we just tried to time everything so that I could just make the most of it. Um, but I never, I never went through those weeks thinking, got good chemo again next week I never like dawned over me I just try and make the most of it as best as I could it sounds so, like you've got a really like positive mindset and inner yeah. strength I feel yeah I feel like I have um I feel like I'm a glass half full person <laughs> and yeah. I do always look for the positives in things and I think the whole cancer diagnosis has completely changed my mind frame anyway and I've always kind of been a a glass half full type of person anyway but I think more so now um since I've had that diagnosis 100% it completely changes my brain um but yeah I just made the most of those weeks and I had the full chemo so that went on for I think I finished my chemo in I think it was October I finished my chemo in October 21 um, and then I had radiotherapy afterwards so um at this point, I still didn't know what was happening with my cancer because I still not had the scan. Um, I'd had the surgery. I was recovering really well from the surgery at this point. I think I was walking with crutches and I'd finished the chemo um, and I started to recover from the chemo. And then I had radiotherapy to directly to the hip, which they weren't quite sure whether I was able to have that or not because I'd already had pelvic radiotherapy before. And there's only a certain amount of radiation that you can be exposed oh, yeah. to before starts to become toxic so they didn't know whether that overlap had happened in my hip um, but quite luckily they looked at everything and there was where I needed the radiotherapy on my hip was on the outside 
and it didn't overlap. So they did let me have more radiotherapy. So I had 15 sessions. So again, it was every day for three weeks. Um, but that it didn't really affect me, I think, because I was recovering from the chemo and the chemo had made me so unwell. I don't think it affected me as much. So, and I knew that that was kind of like the, I think because I knew that that was kind of like the last bit of treatment, I think it daunted me a little bit more because I didn't know what was next. I didn't know whether there was any more treatment available. I didn't know what the cancer was doing, whether it had grown, whether it had spread to different parts of my body. Um, I think it was all very daunting at that point. Yeah, definitely. Um, so where are you now? So I finished, I finished um, radiotherapy in the December. And then in January, I had a scan to see how the chemo, the surgery and the radiotherapy together had all worked. And I had the scan. And the next day after the scan, my consultant rang me at six o'clock at night. And instantly I thought, this has got the bad news. There was absolutely no way that he's ringing me at six o'clock at night, the day after my scan, to tell me anything other than bad news. Um, and I answered the phone and she said, Hi, Charlotte, are you okay? I was like, yes, thank you. Are you? <laughs> and she said, um, I've got your scan results in front of me. I said, okay. She said, um, I'm pleased to tell you that there's no new cancer in your body. I think she, and I thought you, she meant... You've, you froze then, Charlotte. Can you just go back to oh, the where, where she said she, you got the scan results in front? So, yeah, she said, I've got the scan results in front of me. Um, she said, I'm really pleased to tell you there's new there's no new cancer in your body. So I just thought that meant that the cancer was stable, it had not grown, it had not spread yeah. anywhere. So I was like, oh, that's fantastic. So everything's stable, like the cancer's not grown, it's not spread. And she said, she said, no, no, Charlotte. She said, you've got, you've got no cancer in your body at all. Wow. And I just, I mean, even saying it now, I was just like, I just absolutely broke down. I was at my mum and dad's. Yeah. Um, they were they well, obviously they saw me answer the phone and they were kind of like, What what tell us? And I repeated, I was like, and I said, So there's no new cancer in my body at all. And my mum just broke down and my dad was getting emotional and I was crying and we were <laughs> we were all just crying. Um, and she said, you know, I'll let you have some time with your family. She said, I'll ring you next week to tell you like catch up and see what's going to happen from now and yeah it was just I think the whole week was just elation for everyone Absolutely. I rang yeah. friends like I FaceTime my friends because I wanted to see the reaction and all of them were just well we, we were all in absolute disbelief like that was always the aim that was always me frame of mind yeah. that I wanted to do but also in the back of my mind I'm thinking well you know I've been given 12 months to live and yeah. I've been told that this treatment isn't going to cure me so as much as I want to do that and as much as I'm determined yeah. to beat the odds the science is yeah. still there yeah um, so yeah I, it was just crazy is the honest answer it was beyond belief yeah um so, so at that, I can't, I can't decide whether or not at that time, or, or maybe not exactly at that time, but when you look back now, do yeah. you consider yourself lucky to have beaten it or unlucky for it to have happened to you? You know, do you see what I'm saying? Do yeah. you look back and, yeah. and you're angry it's happened to you or 
as all, as all that anger dispersed because you think I've beaten it. Yeah, I, I, I never I never had the anger. Um, really? No, I never had it, and I never once thought, "Why me? Why me?" Um, I kind That's of more, really unusual, Charlotte. I think I kind of more think, um, "Why not me?" That can okay. happen one in two people, so it's gonna happen somewhere. You know, my family. There's there's five of us. My dad's had it, and I've had it. So we're now the two in that five, and you know, touch wood. Hopefully, that's it. <laughs> that's it for the family now. Um, but yeah, I, I never once thought by me. Um, I felt really lucky to have been in it. I felt extremely grateful for the fact that I had the opportunity to carry on living. Um, at that time, there was a couple of the girls who I speak to and I found on Instagram who had cervical cancer. It had spread. Um, theirs was stage four and they weren't lucky enough to have the treatment that I had. Um, it differs between different hospital trusts about what treatment you're offered. I was really lucky to get that second opinion to get the surgery. I was really lucky that my consultant gave me the chemotherapy and the radiotherapy that I needed. And um, the other girls weren't that lucky. They weren't offered surgery. They were only offered palliative, radio, uh, palliative chemotherapy. And I just felt extremely grateful that I'd been given that opportunity to carry on living when others weren't that lucky and others weren't getting the same mm. treatment I was getting. Um, I, which I didn't realise there would be such a difference in the yeah. treatment. In, in It's almost like postcode lottery as to what your hospital Absolutely. is, isn't it? And, Absolutely. And that's re I find that really shocking. I thought there would just be, this is the treatment and everybody would follow. Fortunately not. I think different trusts have different funding and different consultants have different point of views of what they want to treat and what they don't. And um, unfortunately, we have lost quite, quite a couple of the girls, um, Gem and Lars in particular. And it's, um, and Rachel, sorry, I should mention Rachel as well. It's, it's heartbreaking. You get to know these people through social media, but they do become your friends and you do speak yeah. to them. They understand what you're going through. They, they go through it themselves. And, you speak to them about things that you wouldn't speak to your family and friends about. And then when you lose them, but you get the opportunity to carry on living and you don't you don't get that that same sort of um outcome, it completely it gives you a massive um guilt almost that you feel guilty that you're living and they're not. Um, so and what do you do with that how how do you tackle that um so i have because it, it's not you shouldn't feel guilty but if that's no. how you feel you've got to find uh, a way to deal with it haven't you yeah absolutely um and i know a couple of the other girls that have managed to get into remission and they feel the same um and it's it's awful you kind of think that your treatment's finished and you're just going to be happy and you're going to be elated and you're going to get on with your life and you're going to start to rebuild things but i think the, the mental health side of um, post-treatment, regardless of what stage you were, is huge. And I don't think that's talked about enough, um, what you go through. I'm, I'm quite an open person and I, I speak openly about what I'm feeling and what I'm going through. And I spoke to um, my specialist nurse, my cancer specialist nurse, and um, luckily she referred me for some counselling. So I actually went and had six sessions of counselling which was specific for cancer survivors. Um, and that really, really helped. And it, it um, 
I did change my mind frame from that. I kind of learned to accept how I was feeling. And I knew that I was going to feel that way. And I didn't need to try and change the way I was feeling, but I just needed to accept it, but carry on anyway and take that with me. Um, they kind of described it as like a backpack theory. So you put that feeling in your backpack, but you still carry on going um, yeah. and you just take that with you and accept it and just let, let the motion pass, basically. So, yeah, that's um, it, that's the whirlwind. And I've been going for regular checks. Um, I go every three or six months for checkups. And um, I've just had a scan not that long ago, which is all still clear. Everything's fine. Um, that's brilliant news. Basically just dealing with the after effects of the, the treatment, you know, the radiotherapy and the, the chemotherapy. Um, I am in menopause now, so it's put me into sort of a medical menopause. So I do have to take hormone replacement therapy to replace the hormones that I should have my age. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of issues with sort of bladder and bowel issues with the radiotherapy damage and stuff. So it's just Is that irreversible? The, the radiotherapy damage, is that irreversible? Is that um, something you have to manage rather than it will improve? Or? Yeah, we think we think so. Um, I don't think there's any way of knowing is, is the honest answer. Um, I finished my pelvic radiotherapy, it would have been two years ago now. Yeah, just over two years ago. So it's been quite a long time. Um, but there's, I don't think there's any way of knowing. I think it's just time will tell, really. Um, and just learning to manage manage it and adapt, really. Um, and how's your walking? So, well, <laughs> I'm just going to throw a curveball in here now. So um, I've actually just been diagnosed with melanoma um, as What's well. That? So skin cancer. Oh, crikey. Yeah. So, so we're actually I, looking at three diagnoses. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've not actually, I mean, I've told people that you know I've not I've just not actually put it on social media which which is fine I've, I will put it on it's not an issue I've just stepped away from social media for a bit that's all um so yeah I um I check my moles regularly anyway and I actually had a mole on the bottom of my foot on the sole of my foot which had changed quite a lot within a very small space of time so in January I went to my GP and they referred me on the two-week pathway and I had the mole removed and the mole was actually come back as cancerous. So it's called malignant melanoma, so it's skin cancer. Um, and they've had to just do more surgery to remove more skin from around the outside to see whether they've been able to, to take it all away, basically. So because of where the surgery is, it's on the sole of my foot. <clears throat> So is it on the same foot at the hip? Is it all in the same, same leg? Same side. Everything's the same side. <laughs> um, so, yeah, they've done a skin graft as well. So I actually only had the surgery about 10 days ago. So I've got sort of like a big bandage on at the minute. Um, I'm not able to wait back. I've got to use crutches and things. So I'm waiting for that surgery to heal. Um, and once that surgery is healed, fingers crossed, hopefully they've managed to take it all away. I won't need any further treatment. And it's kind of just keeping an eye on the rest of the moles that I've got for any yeah. changes. So touch wood, they, they did cap, you know, I did notice the changes early and it is a really early stage. Um, so hopefully the surgery that they've done has, has managed to take it all. So yeah. so yeah, because of that surgery, the walking is a little bit 
dodgy at the minute. Um, I am How using... was it before? Were you, are you using crutches all the time or a stick? Um, or... I've, got, I've got a stick. I've got a crutch and a stick. So it just depends. It's different days. I alternate, alternate between the two. Um, it just depends how I am. Um, <clears throat> I have got <clears throat> nerve damage in that leg. So... <laughs> Again, I'm going to throw another curveball in, but um, I actually had sepsis just before Christmas. So in November, I actually had sepsis in my hip joint. So is that because of the surgery, or they're not they're not sure? So it it's a little bit of a, a mystery because it happened so long after my surgery. I think it was like eighteen months after my surgery, and any risk of infection comes quite quickly after the surgery. So. Everything had healed, everything had closed up. So we're not quite sure where it came from or why it happened. Um, but it was actually a, a strep, so it's strep B, which causes sepsis. And I sort of had like a, a fluid, um, like an infection collection in my hip joint and the hip sockets. So, um, yeah, I was rushed into A&E, spent a bit of time and resource. I had to go for quite a few surgeries to wash the joint out to get rid of the infection. And unfortunately, during the first surgery to wash the joint out, one of the nerves in my leg was, was cut, it was damaged. And that nerve that was damaged controls my foot. So when you lift your foot up, that is the um, nerve that was cut. So I've now got a foot drop, like a permanent foot okay. drop. And I have to wear a brace to, to keep my foot up so I can kind of walk and not trip over my feet. Um, so, yeah, that happened during the first two. <laughs> I'm, I'm surprised my dog hasn't started yet, to be honest. I'll just close my door. Yeah, no worries. Be a delivery man or something. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, I had this. Um, I had the three surgeries. I ended up going back down to Birmingham again to the specialist hospital. They replaced all the metal work in my leg, and because it had been in contact with the infection, they needed to to remove it. And they replaced everything. They packed it full of antibiotic. Um, I was in hospital for over a month, I think. But touch wood, they got the infection under control. Everything healed. Um. And yeah, I was, uh, before this skin cancer diagnosis, I was kind of recovering from the sepsis. So because of the surgery that they'd done, I kind of had to learn to walk again. I had to learn to walk with the drop foot and the splint. So I was really getting into physio and rehab. Um, yeah. And that's what I will get back to once this surgery is healed. I will get back to that again. Um, but yeah, the progress is, is there. It's progressing and I feel like I'm doing really well. Um, yeah. you look you look um, really um, well oh thank you <laughs> you do you, you yeah. look really well I'd like to hear what you've gone through it's just the, the the reflection doesn't seem yeah. to match up with you know the image of, of what you, do. you you look really healthy you've got lovely glowing skin and um, you look really I mean, well touch wood I'm hoping I've had my fair share of curveballs now you know I've had difficult cancer, yeah. cancer sepsis now I've got skin cancer and I just think Surely I can't have any more thrown at me. <laughs> Surely no. this is now, you know, I get the results from this surgery. Hopefully they've managed to get it all. And then hopefully I can just focus on the rehab and I can get my hip and my legs strong again and start, to, you know, getting me, me walking back up to speed again and start rebuilding my life. And, you know, I'm, absolutely. I'm, 
start getting back to some sort of normality. But at the same time, I know that it's a completely different life now. Like another thing I've had to sort of adapt to is the fact that I'm not just going to go back to my old life again. Like that life is done with. I've got to move on from that. And in a way, you kind of grieve that past. You grieve the life yes. that you wanted and that you should have. But you can't go back to that. Like, you know, everything has changed now. So you just start to rebuild a new life and you adapt and it's a new beginning and it's a chance to actually live. You know, it's, yeah. There's a lot of people that don't get this opportunity. There's a lot of people that don't get the chances that I'm getting. And even if I have to live an adapted life, I'm still living a life. It's still a life to live. So yeah. that's my mindset and that's how I try and adapt to things. Do you have plans? Do you know what you want to do? Or are you just taking it a day at a day? Just taking it day by day. Um, I'm going to Florida next week. So my best friend moved to Florida at Christmas. So um, this was months ago and me and my other friends are going out to here. So we're going to spend a week there, which is amazing. Um, And yeah, that's it. That's all I've got planned. I haven't got anything else planned. So we'll just take it day by day and just see what happens I think yeah yeah I think your um your outlook and that and that strength is is what shines through to me definitely I, I think that, that I, I, I can't I can't quite grasp how you've managed to keep that with like you say curveball yeah. and curveball and, and yeah. you, it's amazing what would you say to other people who are listening to this who maybe going down journeys similar to your own or trying to support Um, somebody who's going through that journey it's it's completely different for everybody and not everybody's experience is the same um I say experience it's not really an experience but not everybody's diagnosis and treatment is the same and some people cope with it really well and some people don't cope with it really well and it's completely individual to each person so I think you just need to support the person that's going through it in the way that is best for them. Just ask them, just talk to them, ask them how they're feeling, ask them if they wanted to talk about it or if they don't. Ask them if there's anything that you can do to make things better. Um, for me, I just I just needed my friends and family there for me and they were there for me and they were amazing. And um, social media was a big thing for me, I think. Because I wasn't able to work and everything had been taken away from me, I did a lot. I completely changed my Instagram into this sort of raising awareness um, thing. And I think putting things on there and helping to raise that awareness whilst I was going through treatments really helped me kind of feel like I was still doing my nursing sort of care inside. Um, and I did a lot of research and I've looked into things and obviously I knew that the smear test had changed because I didn't know that before, but I, I knew that since my diagnosis. And I've done a lot of raising awareness to, to, to tell people that it's not just your smear tests. Yes, they're important, they're really important. Please go for your smear tests. But you also need to know your body and you need to know the signs and symptoms of all gynae cancers. Um, we only have one screen in the UK for gynae cancer, and that's cervical cancer and that's the, the smear test. But there's five gynae cancers and we don't have screens for any of the others we don't have regular checkups it's all dependent on us keeping an eye on our bodies so what what should people be looking out for so the main signs and symptoms are abnormal bleeding so 
any abnormal bleeding that isn't right for you, what doesn't follow your normal pattern, if it's after sex, if it's between your periods, any bleeding after menopause is a big red flag. Um, abnormal discharge, that's usually like large amounts of discharge, any pain that you've got in your pelvis or your lower back, um, they're the main, the main symptoms to look out for. And my main advice is to know your body and push because so so many ladies so many people are going to their gps with these symptoms and they're saying you know oh it's fine your smear test was normal everything's fine it's just one of those things or you know it's a lot of ladies who've got ovarian cancer their main symptom is bloating and they often get passed off as rbs and unfortunately we do put our trust in medical professionals um and we do believe that what they tell us is right but sometimes not all the time but sometimes we have to fight against that if we know that there is something wrong with our body we have to fight against that sometimes um and my main advice is to know the signs and symptoms and advocate for yourself and it can be hard it can be really hard when you're sat in a GP surgery you've got a trained medical professional you've got a doctor telling you that everything's fine and you're saying no it's not there's something wrong um how do you overcome that barrier you know I think yeah. things do need to change but I, I don't know what the answer is going to be but yeah my main advice is go for your smear tests know, you, know your body know the signs and symptoms because unfortunately it's not widely known it's not taught we don't know these things we don't sit in school and get taught about cervical smears and abnormal bleeding you know we we turn 25 and we get a letter on the doorstep to say you've got to go for this screen and and that's it um, and we put so much trust into that screening as well don't we we do yeah we do um and unfortunately it, it can go wrong and it can be wrong and i know ladies that have been diagnosed with cervical cancer that have had their smear result the smear review results and it has come back catastrophic. It has come back that lots of things were missed. And I know that's really rare. I know that's, you know, a very small thing. And I don't want to focus on that because the testing and the labs and the medical side and science is phenomenal. And the majority of the time they get it right. But unfortunately, yeah. there are very, very small incidences where they don't. And, yeah, um, I think... Personally, my view on the smear test changing in 2019, personally, I don't, I don't like the thought of that. Um, I think personally, I'd be a lot more comfortable if I knew that the cells were looked at anyway, regardless yeah, of whether I had I agree. TV, which is how it used to be. Um, and I think, don't quote me on this, but I think that is still the case in either Wales or, or Ireland, um, where it is changing. And smear tests are now going to every five years in some places and I do think that's going to end up um nationwide at some point um which again it it doesn't sit comfortable with me um but at the same time I see the science behind it 99% of cervical cancers are caused by HPV if you're swabbing for HPV and that's coming back as negative then technically there is no there's nothing there to start to change the cells um yeah. But unfortunately, HPV does lie dormant in the body. It does come back um, and it does change cells. It takes a very long time for those cells to change. So 
in theory, I understand what the scientists are saying. If you have a smear test and it's fine, and then five years' time you go and there are some abnormal cells, it's really slow growing anyway. So, yeah. Is it HPV that the younger ones are now getting the vaccinations for? So in time, then surely the smear test will have to change again because the HPV won't be as as yeah. common because of all the vaccinations so there's got to be something that turns again hasn't there in theory the theory is that we vaccinate 12 12 and 13 year olds against hpv before they have a chance to have any sexual contact the thing is with hpv is it's not it's not um, a, a sexually transmitted disease it's not an sti where it is trans or it is passed on sexually yeah. so kissing touching anything like that can pass on HPV. And I think that's the, the aim is to vaccinate younger um, people. And then in that in that sense, in theory, HPV eventually will be eradicated and there won't be any disease, any virus, the HPV, to change the cells. So in theory, cervical cancer in the future should in theory be a distant memory. But yeah, I'm... I'm not sure how that's, yeah, we'll see, see how that pans out, but yeah. I think you're doing a really important, valuable thing by raising awareness, and I've said it before, but I think it's it's amazing that you've got the strength to do that and and, and to Thanks. tackle all these curveballs that you're fighting off <laughs> extremely well. You just <laughs> and have I to wish you... And the fact, that you, the fact that I'm here and I'm still able to keep going is all that matters, and if yeah. that means I've got to keep fighting these curves, then I will, I will keep fighting them because me fighting them and getting over them is me still being here and me still living. So if that's yeah. the way that I've got to live, at least I'm living, <laughs> you yes, know. You are, yeah. yeah. And it's been an absolute pleasure and inspiration to speak to you, Charlotte. So thank you very much. And no, I wish you all the best for the future. To me, yeah, it's been great. Thank so, you. I will send this over now. Um, if there's anything else that you think you wanted to say or anything you want adding on, drop me an email. It might be that we just have to do another quick meet so that you can say it verbally and they can slot yeah. it in, but have a think about it if there's anything else. Yeah. Like I said, I'm freelance, I'm in the middle, so I don't know much about the before and after. But if you've yeah. got any questions, if you email me, I can put them, yeah, I can find somebody to answer it if, if I can't answer it. Yeah. So if you've got cool. any um, questions, please stay in yeah. touch with me. Can I and just I have one thing? The one thing I do want to add and I do want to say is I know I have a positive outlook and I know I sort of um, look at everything in a positive way and a glass half full type of thing, but I know a lot of people don't. um, And I just want them to know that that's okay. Like I I have had dark times. um, I have suffered, you know, within that process. And not so long ago, the past few months, I've been in quite a dark place mentally which is why I've come away from social media um but I just want them to know that not everybody's cancer diagnosis is the same and some people look at it positively and some people don't and that is absolutely okay the way that you deal with your diagnosis and the way that you deal with your treatment is individual to you and just because I tackle it this way or if you see somebody else on social media tackles it in a different way doesn't mean that you have to be like that as well and it don't don't feel bad for not being positive is what yeah. I'm trying to say everybody's yeah. out with and, and um 
treatment. I think, yeah, yeah, I think that's really important to say, isn't yeah, it? That you, you you have to manage it the way that you you manage it, don't you? Yeah, that's it. And if you you know if you stay in bed for the week and you don't want to speak to anybody, that's absolutely fine. If that's the way you yeah. deal with it, if you want to get up and go for a run every morning and go out for brunch and meet friends and family, then that is also okay. And there's no right or wrong way of doing this. And the main thing is getting through it. And the way that you get through it is individual to you. And that is absolutely fine. But you've just got to keep that focus on getting through it. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I think that's really important. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah. No, that's brilliant. Thank you. Enjoy the rest of your day, Charlotte. Yeah, I'll go and see you. what my dogs are yelling at now. <laughs> Lovely speaking to you. You yeah. take care. Thank you so much. See you soon. Thank Bye. you, Charlotte. Bye. Bye. Thank you.